This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. All righty. End of the weeky with Tiki. Here we are again. TK. What are, back, we, what are we gonna? What do we got on the docket today, man? What do we want to talk about? Oh man. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something. I've been thinking about a lot, and uh, it's it's basically this concept of of trusting the magic of your own path, and how a lot of the difficulties we we face in life are the result of doing things we we don't want to do in order to avoid difficulty. So l- l- let me tell you what inspired this. I was watching this. A video of Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he was telling the story of how when he was studying astrophysics in school, um, he had a friend that was really into um, activism and, and civil rights. And he said to NDT, you know, I think you're really smart. You have a lot of potential. But as a black man, I think there's something wrong with you wasting all of that intelligence just on studying physics and all of this theoretical stuff. We need your passion and intelligence in the civil rights movement out here doing the kind of activism stuff that I'm doing. Now, this guy was a good friend. He was a mentor. He was a guy that NDT really respected. Oh, man, that's I'm like, I'm already bristling. I get so (laughs) fired up when someone's like, we need you. You owe us doing something different. You know, don't do that. We need you. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and this and this was a guy that wasn't easy to dismiss for him. Right. It wasn't just like some dude, you know, from from somewhere far away. It was a mentor, a friend, a guy that he respected. And the guy was able to articulate his convictions, you know, quite persuasively. But, you know, so Neil struggled with it, kind of felt guilty about it, thought about it, questioned himself. But he decided to stick with his gut and, and, and to continue studying physics because that's what he's into. So anyway, a little bit down the road. He's, you know, in his you know, grad school office doing his thing and he gets a call from a local news station and there's some kind of uh, phenomena in the sky that's got, you know, uh, some people worried and they, they wanted to know if anyone in the department there could explain what was going on. And Neil was able to explain to her what was going on and let her know that this was a um, this was, you know, pretty typical astronomical phenomena. It wasn't something that we needed to be worried about. So the local reporter says, can you come down to the station and say that on TV so we can have, you know, a scientist explain this to everyone? And he said, sure. So they sent someone to get him from a storm. He goes on TV and he sends out this message that says, hey, the astronomical phenomena you're observing, it's not a problem. We're all going to be okay." And Neil deGrasse Tyson says, this message wasn't for black people. He wasn't saying black people are going to be OK. He was saying we're all going to be OK. All right. And he says this was a powerful moment because at that time there weren't a lot of African-American astrophysicists, a lot of people going on TV as African-Americans saying these sorts of things. And he said since then, so many people over the years have come to him young black people who have gone into engineering or into you know science and technology and they've said to neil neil seeing you on television and seeing the example that you set in the sciences that is what has inspired me to go into physics to go into chemistry to go into engineering 
And and I don't know where Neil's friend is now, but one of the lessons that Neil deGrasse Tyson learned from that is that you are far more likely to have the impact on society that you need to have if you go about it in a way that respects the magic of your own path. I mean, anyone that's concerned with civil rights, anyone that's concerned with equality or cultural impact has has to concede the point that it is a good thing when more people from different races and different cultures become interested in science, technology, and engineering because of the diversity of their role models. Neil deGrasse achieved that goal, but he didn't achieve it by following external obligations. He achieved it by doing what he loved, man. You know, Isn't I, that powerful? Oh, man. I mean, what it, what it makes me think of, too, is that, that I feel like saying – be you, find your thing, do be true to yourself. Here's a story about someone who is true to themselves. That's enough sometimes. And it's inspiring. And it's like, okay, yeah, I got to remind myself that. But sometimes we're, we're cost benefit calculating machines. Humans are, whether we're conscious of it or not. Sometimes you're like, yeah, that's, that's a high cost though. And like, all I get for a benefit is just this internal feeling of being inspired or this internal feeling of like, I should just feel warm and fuzzy about being me, even though it sucks and it costs a lot. So sometimes I think really walking through instead of just saying, but, but think about how inspiring it is to stay true to yourself. Here's a story of somebody doing it, you know, really walking through the costs and benefits of both paths when you're confronted with one of those types of choices. Like, well, I know this doesn't resonate with me. I know this isn't me. I know I feel kind of like I'm selling out or giving up to do this but it just feels scary to do the other thing. Really walk through all the possible outcomes. And here's where you start to realize, okay, so I do the thing that I don't love and uh, you know, I end up having some mediocre success and I have everybody else is, is proud of me, uh, prestige of others, but it's not quite right on the inside. So there's a cost to that. Uh, but if I, if I go after what I love, you know, oh, it's really high risk. It's, it's you know, maybe it won't work out. But that's not the only thing that might happen. If you abandon what you want to do, if you abandon your true self, another thing that might happen is later when you've sort of sold out based on your own definition, someone else might go pursue what you were going to do and they might get the praise and adulation of others. So that's something. And I think there's nothing worse. There's no position worse than being like, oh man, that could have been me. If I would have stayed true, that could have been me. Um, TK, uh, you, dude, you, you met, you got, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, man. I, I, I gotta interrupt for a quick second. Cause I have a story about that. That is so <laughs> on point. Okay. So check this out. <laughs> this is kind of a crazy story. Back in the day, I was like a freshman or sophomore year in, in, in high school and my family, we took a family vacation to Niagara Falls in Canada. And my brother and I, we saw these, like, I, I don't, I don't know how to describe them. They're like these poncho styled hoodies that we really like. We, we thought they were so cool, dude. And we begged and begged my father to buy these things for us. But you know how it is when you're on vacation and you're in these touristy gift shops. Everything is overpriced. My dad didn't want to buy these sweaters, man. But we pleaded and pleaded, come on, dad. And he buckled, man, and he got them for us. And we were so pumped up and we wore these things every day. We felt so cool. So we get home, we go to school, 
And, you know, I went to a different school than my brothers. And so I'm the only Coleman in my school. And I, and I walk in with my hoodie and, dude, I was feeling fresh. You know that song? Ain't nobody don't pass me. I'm just so fresh and clean. <laughs> was that outcast? <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember who that <laughs> That's how I felt, man. I felt real fresh and clean. And I felt like I was the coolest cat in town. And everybody made fun of me, dude. Everybody made fun of me. Like, I don't know what it was. I thought the sweater was cool, but people made fun of the sweater. So, you know, I, I stopped wearing it. And my dad noticed that I stopped wearing it. He was like, hey, what's up with that sweater? You know, you made me pay all that money for it. I was like, oh, yeah. I, I just probably appeared like some typical fickle-minded kid who, you know, begs for something one day and then, you know, doesn't think it's cool the next day. But I, I still thought it was cool and I liked it, but people made fun of me for it. So here's the crazy improbable thing that occurs. Uh, I'm going to reveal my age a little bit, but at this time, Beverly Hills 90210 was hot. That was the show. <laughs> and I, re- <laughs> oh, and I yeah. remember, oh yeah, man, I remember a specific episode where uh, Luke Perry's character, Dylan, he wore the exact same poncho <laughs> style hoodie that my brother and I had. I kid you not, dude. And then, like, I would say within a few weeks, I saw tons of kids coming to school with that same sweater because it became in. That became the new thing. And I was so mad, man, because, like, all these kids are wearing it and it was cool. And I could have been the dude. I could have been that guy who initiated that thing, who introduced that element of cool into my world. But you know who I got to be? I got to be that dude who was a reactor to what everyone else was doing. I got to be the dude that said, oh, yeah, I did that first. You know how we all have that friend who created Amazon before Amazon? You know what I mean? Like, I got to be that guy. Like, yeah, I thought of Facebook before Zuckerberg. I created eBay before they came out. And nobody ever believes that guy. You just look like a a bitter, lying hack. And that's what I looked like, man. And, And it was so, it was so upsetting because on one end, I not only didn't get the credit, for being as cool as I was, but it also was this this moment of realization where everything that you think is cool will eventually have its day. There will come a point in the future where someone where someone somewhere will declare that it's okay and it's going to work. And then you're just gonna think about all the value you lost from not trusting your own sense of cool. And man, that feeling sucks, dude. Oh, man. I mean, I think that's a great question in the entrepreneurial space as well, because timing is so important if you're doing anything differently, if you're trying to innovate in some way. And you could have a phenomenal product or process or innovation, and you could just be too early. Obviously, you could be too late if other people have have done it and captured the market. Um, But getting that timing right is a really big deal. And I think it's easy to sort of to get so distracted by the timing that you back down on what your actual core idea or innovation is. So so if you observe a particular market and you're like, man, there is a gap there. I know there's something I could do. I know if we did this totally radically differently, I know it would work. I know it would be valuable. And if you just sort of assess it and say like, I am really confident that this is the way the market's going to go. It must. There are all these reasons why it's, it's going to go there. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. But the market's not ready yet. And you kind of get faced with this crossroads where you can say, okay, well, I'll kind of 
deviate from what I actually want to do, this radical change. And I'll just do something that like is basically, you know, the current market in disguise. It's basically offering what people already want, but trying to maybe get a little closer. And eventually when the market's ready, we'll get there. And again, I mean, from a business standpoint, that may or may not be a good strategy, but I think it's helpful to ask yourself, what if the market moved there overnight? What if it happened quick all of a sudden? And what if someone else did the full-blown radical version, the thing I originally wanted to do? How would I feel? Would I be like, oh man, you know, here I was watering it down because I was afraid the market wasn't ready. And then all of a sudden it got ready faster than I thought and somebody else captured it. And, and if, if that would make you feel sick to your stomach, then that's something to take into your calculation and say, do I really want to deviate or would I rather go for it all the way? And it's either going to work or not. But if it does, if that tide turns, if public opinion shifts, I'm going to be the one who's been there from day one. I'm going to be the one who's been working on it and I didn't abandon it and I didn't water it down. And I'm not going to see somebody else sort of capture the benefits of my dream or my idea. And, and you know, it's, it's not just like I didn't get to be first and all oh, that sucks. I don't get the glory, which is a part of it. I mean, that's, that's something everybody, you know, wants, but it's also if somebody else did it, would they do it as well as you? Would they do it with the same passion or would you be sitting there saying, oh, that person's doing what I was going to do, but I didn't have the courage and they're doing it wrong. I could have done it better, but now it's too late. Yes. And, and, and here's an additional element that you lose out on. And, and, and that's the value of time. I mean, think about all the time you lose, the momentum you could have built had you just trusted your gut and, and followed your own path. So for instance, I, I know in my life, I'm, I'm at an interesting, interesting phase right now where a lot of friends are starting to really get interested in things that I've been interested in for about five years. And when I first started getting interested in these things, some of my friends made fun of them. Some of my friends just didn't see the value of it. So they kind of nervously tolerated my, you know, the way are you, I was are you talking about. Are you talking about me in the NBA regular season? <laughs> That's pretty much exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about you and Levi's attitude about the NBA season and gra and graphic novels. No, <laughs> you know, so 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 a lot of my friends are are coming around, and during that time, I was tempted to sort of abandon my interests in order to fit in, in order to avoid being teased or misunderstood. But I did it. I continued to invest in what I was interested in. And now I've got people coming up to me saying to me, dude, you were talking about this stuff like five years ago. You were doing this stuff a few years ago. And I, I didn't get it, but I totally get it now. And, and, and that's cool. It, it's nice to get the vindication of knowing that you were right when you stuck to your guns. But imagine had I made my choices around fitting in and I tried to avoid the social costs. I would have lost all the benefits I've gained from working on the things I've been working on for the past five years. So it's not just that I would have been mad thinking to myself, oh, shucks, I could have gotten credit for being the cool guy that introduced these things. I would have actually lost a lot of value, a lot of time because I wouldn't have been investing in, you know, building social and mental capital that's now paying off in major ways. You know, um, far be it for me to ever use a politician 
in an example <laughs> in anything but a negative <laughs> light. I don't care about politicians, politics, voting is a waste. I'm not into any of that stuff. I think it, 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 uh, it saps your power to even put your hope in it. But this is a really interesting sort of, let's just look at it as like a cultural example. So, you know, there are a lot of libertarians, people who have a, a high degree of value for civil liberties and free markets and very smart libertarians, uh, excellent communicators, phenomenal scholars. I mean, some of the best intellects that I know are disproportionately are libertarians and, and whether they're in academia or they're in the policy realm or whatever, for decades, there have been a lot of well-spoken, clear thinking, um, sharp libertarians with sort of a radical uh, shrink the size and scope of government message. And they felt very, very isolated. They were a tiny minority. You know, after Milton Friedman, who was probably the most well-known and, and sort of a household name advocate of these ideas, after he passed, there was a, a, de a couple decades really where there wasn't like a really prominent voice. And I think you saw a lot of people who believed in, in the ideas of liberty say, look, this is, we're such a minority of opinion. It's too radical for people. Everything from views on the drug war to foreign policy to government spending, the Federal Reserve, you name it. They felt like we've got to just tone it down a little bit. Let's just water it down a little bit. Let's just say, hey, government should be more prudent. They should tax a little less. They should spend a little less. They should you know, not be quite as adventurous over here. They even though at their core, they were really radical. Like government should be like one, you know, they should, should be 20% of the size it is now. There should be no department of this and that. There should be none of these foreign wars. You know, that's that's sort of the core of the libertarian message. But it was like, let's, in effort to sort of win a larger chunk of the public, let's kind of try to appear like reasonable. Whether it was politicians, people trying to run for office as libertarians or just have a, a say in the policy world, this was a pretty common strategy because they didn't think sort of the market was ready. Whether it was or wasn't at the time, who knows? But all of a sudden, something weird happened. Ron Paul, who is not very well-spoken, who's got all kinds of, you know, uh, like, he's been in politics a long time, which means, by definition, he's got baggage and skeletons in the closet and all kinds of things that make him an easy target. You know, he he's not very eloquent. He kind of just mumbles and says stuff. Um, he comes out and all of a sudden, like there's this hunger among young people for these radical libertarian ideas. And he is the spokesperson. He's the guy that's representing this stuff. And he's not watering it down. He's not saying, here's a comic book on the basic ideas of supply and demand. He's like, oh, go read Human Action by Ludwig von Mises. You know, he's like recommending these big heady tomes. He's, he's, you know, hey, let's eliminate the Department of Education. Let's eliminate the income tax. You know, um, the Federal Reserve needs to go away entirely. We, you know, I mean, just stuff that was like out of bounds, or at least it, it appeared that way. And not only was it all of these sort of really smart libertarian thinkers on the sidelines kind of frustrated at this because like, now he's getting credit, like, oh, he's the guy, he's the he's the spokesperson for liberty, but we've been here all along, we've been here. Not only is it frustrating, like, it wasn't them, but many of those people were better communicators, could have more eloquently done that. They could have, you know, I'm, I'm not like ripping on Ron Paul, I'm not supporting Ron Paul and anything, it's just a cultural observation. It's one of those moments where, in an effort to, to, to not be offensive. If who you really are and what you really believe in, you don't think the world is ready for, so you water it down and hide it. 
then all of a sudden the world is ready and somebody else comes along and they don't do it as good as you can. And they've got all these other problems that they bring along with them and they're out there and they're the spokesperson and you're sitting there, <laughs> you know, sitting on your watered down uh, ideas and it's too late now to be like, no, 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 I'm, I'm radical too. Hey guys, <laughs> you know, look at me. Um, this, this, it makes me think of this great quote by Paul Graham, uh, startup founder and, and uh, venture capitalist. Paul Graham has a lot of great essays. And one of my favorite is how to do work that you love. And in it, he talks about the siren song of prestige, the, the, the good opinion of mm. others outside of those very, very closest to you. Mm. Even that, I would say, can be dangerous sometimes. But And he, he talks about all the reasons you shouldn't go after prestige. But there, this one quote is just really interesting. Because it's about this topic we've been talking about, about if you persist long enough, you know, um, it might end up being the very thing that, that the world needs and wants. He says, prestige is just fossilized inspiration. If you do anything well enough, you'll make it prestigious. Plenty of things we now consider prestigious were anything but at first. Jazz comes to mind, although almost any established art form would do. So just do what you like and let prestige take care of itself. I love that prestige is fossilized wow. inspiration. Like once upon a time, everything that's seen as prestigious now, it was you with that poncho. It was somebody who just wanted to do it because they believed in it. It was who they were. They loved it. It only became prestigious because they didn't give up on it, because they stuck with it. Wow, man. that That's amazing. You know, that, that, that's really amazing. You know, I, I've experienced I've experienced that in my own life. I remember when I first went to college, um, one of the things I wanted to study was philosophy. And I was just interested in it. I was interested in asking big questions and playing around with the different ideas, but it really made my parents nervous. And it didn't help because, I mean, it, it didn't help that someone that they knew and respected told them, hey, be careful about letting your son study philosophy. I knew a guy who studied philosophy and he pretty much went crazy. <laughs> Man, people can come up with some stuff. Okay, so this hey, is what was- a, But you gotta be honest, that is a legitimate concern about you. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it is. Okay, so I'll admit that. So my parents were rightfully afraid, nervous about me going to study philosophy, right? And, you know, they didn't- they didn't put their foot down and stand in my way and say, no, I forbid you from doing this. My parents weren't really like that. They would express what their concerns were, but then respect my ultimate decision. And I decided that I wanted to move forward with this because I was just passionate about it. Well, over the years, even though, you know, my father kind of worried and, you know, kind of wondered if I would turn out to be OK, he's developed a deep love and respect appreciation for philosophy because of my studies in it. And he'll call me all the time, you know, before he's preparing a sermon or sometimes he'll just call me to talk. And and, and sometimes he'll, he'll, he'll just ask me like, all right, philosophize about this or give me your thoughts on this. So I, I've experienced in my life in a lot of different ways. In fact, I, I know a guy who was working at Best Buy and he was really passionate about music. And, and, and every time he would get a check, he would he would spend a small portion of his check on a piece of studio equipment. And at this time, he was living with his mother in his mom's basement. So he, he didn't really have a lot going on. But but he was always passionate about learning music and learning how to make tracks and things like that. Every single check he would faithfully set aside a little bit 
and, and build up his studio piece by piece. A lot of people got on this guy about his lifestyle, like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be spending your money on this studio equipment. Maybe you should be saving up to move out so you're not living in your mom's basement anymore. And he was very vulnerable to the kinds of concerns and fears and criticisms that lots of responsible people would have. But he stuck with his guns and he eventually built his studio up. He would come home and he would practice the keyboards every night. After about three years of this vulnerable, easy to criticize lifestyle, the guy started selling his tracks, tracks that he was creating to independent musicians and was able to make a living off that. And eventually people started praising him. And, it, and it's like they all of a sudden had amnesia about ever being his big, biggest critics. And they started saying stuff like, oh, man, yeah, I could tell that you were going to go places because you were just always hustling. That's all you thought about. I mean, I knew you were working at that job, but you would always spend your money on it and talk about it. I knew you turned out to be something. And it's like, well, well, why wouldn't you say that? Why wouldn't you say that to him when instead of criticizing him when he was going through it? it it's because it was that case of fossilized inspiration. He had to stick with it. He had to eventually find himself. He had to create value by, by just following his gut. And eventually he earned people's respect. So, you know so what I mean? The honest friends and family are the ones that will say, hey, man, if this fails, it's a terrible idea. Don't do it. If it succeeds, it's a great idea. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, all right. So it's easy. Okay. It's not easy. I don't want to say that because it's actually not easy to think about all these stories of people persisting, whatever else, um, and say, yay, that's, that's really awesome. But what about, what about the, the people who stick with that and it just never pans out? It just doesn't end up working. Maybe their dream is a particular business or an invention or to become a, an artist of some kind. And everybody tells them you should abandon it and they don't, and then they don't succeed at it. Yeah, that that's me. That's my life. So, <laughs> I, I don't have to like, yeah, I don't have to speculate about that. that. That's the life I have lived. Everything I've wanted in life, I've gone after it. And I failed at at least about half of those things. So there are a lot of things in life I've gone after that I've succeeded at. And I've experienced a lot of success and I'm blessed in that way. But I have fallen on my face many times. I have failed many times. And this is what I will say from my experience. And not only that, Let's let, let's kind of get rid of this myth that we can easily make the distinction between people who get what they want and people who don't. Mm. Because if you talk to people who get what they want, you will find that they got what they want after going through a long process of enduring the experience of not getting what they want. You know, it's almost, and, it's and, almost and, more about becoming who you want. If you don't go after that thing, even if you like get a good job and everyone else thinks you're successful – are you going to like yourself? Are you going to be happy? Or are you always going to be like, man, I wish I could have gone after that dream. And if you do go after it and you keep persisting, even if you don't sort of succeed at what your original goal was, are you going to like the person you are? Are you going to say, hey, I went all in. I did this. I became a better person through the process. It's, it's hard to, to define success and failure because we're always defining it based on a past definition, like based on what I used to want. I'm doing something different now. Does that mean I have succeeded or failed as a person? I don't. Sorry, go ahead. You got to keep keep no, telling your story. No, man, you, you said it perfectly. Like if you talk to the people who are usually successful at getting what they want, you'll find that those people had a lot of experiences of not getting what they want. But through the experience of not getting what they want and learning from it, they became better versions of themselves. 
And by becoming better versions of themselves, they not only became better equipped to create the things they wanted from that state, but they also they also had a more refined understanding of, of what it is they really wanted. So I, I'm, I'm not so sure that failure is the tragedy that people make it out to be. I think if you talk to people who've actually experienced the failure, rather than just the ones who analyze it in their minds, you you, you get a different story about it. So would you it. feel comfortable saying, if you have something you want to be or go after or do, um, you should always do it? Or do you feel like that's like, you know, irresponsible or dangerous advice? Well, I, I mean, look, I, I think you should always ultimately go after what you want, but that doesn't mean every way of pursuing what you want is intelligent, right? That doesn't mean that every way of pursuing what you want is equally uh, responsible or equally effective. Um, so I would say go after the things what you want. I mean, because what's the opposite? Doing what you don't want to do, but <laughs> you know, but but be intelligent about it. So I, I think you know, for instance. Um, when when I chose to study philosophy, even though it made my parents nervous, I didn't go about it in a way that disrespected my dad and deliberately alienated my relationship with him. We're still good friends. You know what I mean? I, I, I love him. You I, know, so go ahead. No, I almost feel like when someone says, you know, oh, you got to be careful, all this, you know, going after what you love or trying to be true to yourself. And, you know, maybe it's too risky. I think in in my mind, the first thing I think is, well, what's the alternative? Doing what you hate? But I think most people aren't thinking in those terms. I think they're often thinking of themselves as some kind of actuarial table, like as if their life, it's a series of statistical probabilities. And the way to manage it is to make all the decisions that are going to increase the statistical likelihood of this or that outcome. Um, and, and sort of man it like a risk mitigation strategy, treating your life as, as like an insurance policy of some kind and saying, okay, well, according to all the data on every, on other people in aggregate, people who have made this decision have a slightly lower risk of this and a slightly higher chance of this. And I'm going to just constantly be managing my sort of risk pool in my life, in my decisions. I think that's probably one of the, the surest ways to live a frustrating, unhappy life and I also don't think it's going to really protect you uh, very well. I mean, it's kind of like the person who's who's playing a sport and they're just really, really consciously trying not to get injured, right? Like, like their muscles yeah, are more yeah. tense. They're not in the flow of the game. They're more likely to get injured if they if they do it, if they're doing it with fear or with that. And I just think sort of treating your life like you're a statistical probability um, instead of you have a will and unique position and choices of their own. Like who cares that statistically X percent of people who studied philosophy make Y amount of money. You are not a lottery ticket to, to paraphrase uh, or to quote Peter Thiel uh, from, I think it's from zero to one. I, I, I think that's what most people are thinking about though. I don't think they're thinking, well, you should, you should do what you hate instead of what you love. I think they're thinking you should constantly be assessing your risk tables and trying to minimize risk at every turn, um, which is really weird because even if you can, you can only minimize it a little bit. Whereas if you focus on maximizing reward, you have a huge amount of control over that. You know, you know what? Here's the interesting thing about risk, by the way. And, and, and you and I discussed this whole issue of follow your passion 
on, on another episode that, that I, I think we covered a lot of good ground. But one thing I said there that I'll repeat here is I'm an advocate of follow your priorities, not just follow your passion, because we speak about passion as if it's this singular monolithic thing. Like you have one thing that you were born to do and that is it. Like, no, in, in the course of a, in any given moment, you'll probably have about six mutually exclusive things that you feel passionate about, that you're interested in, that you love. And you may not be able to do all of those things. So you have to assess your own priorities combined with your own tolerance for risk and go after your priorities in as intelligent of a manner as possible. But but here's something important about risk that gets left out of the discussion. So we, we all preach about the importance of you know thinking about risk and calculating your risk and being responsible. But we also understand that there is a correlation between your level of commitment and discipline and creativity in a field and your level of success. We all know that even if you do something that is secure, so let's take accounting, which boasts like a 98% placement rate or something along those lines. If you go into accounting- and 98% dissatisfaction. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm sure there are plenty of happy accountants. I know a few. <laughs> right. I'm sure there are plenty. I've met three of them. <laughs> you know, but if you go into accounting being mediocre, if you go into it just feeling like, oh, the field is going to do the work for me, you won't be very special. You won't go very far in life and, and you won't be very happy with yourself. OK, so there is a correlation between commitment, the exercise of creativity, discipline, rigor and things along those lines. Now, my question is, what do you think? you are most likely to be creative at? What do you think you are most likely to work hard at um, when you do something? The things you're made to do or the things you are genuinely interested in for yourself? So so let me give you an example, Isaac. Let's say, ha has your mother ever made you do something that you didn't want to do, like take out the garbage? Oh, yeah. All right. So whenever you've done that, have you ever at any point in your life after taking out your gar garbage, even though you didn't want to do that, did you ever look across the street and say, hey, my neighbor needs his garbage taken out too. And so does the person living next to them. You know what? I'm just going to dedicate this day to taking out everybody's garbage. You ever did that? Uh, no. Are you trying to make me feel guilty? Not at all, man. Not at all. <laughs> you know, you know the, the best part is whenever I ask a question like that, I could be in a room of 100. There's always one person that's so proud to say, yes, they've done that oh, before. Oh, isn't that the worst? <laughs> it's the worst when you're like, like I'll, I'll, I'll try to illustrate the point about rational ignorance in the political process. And I'll be like, who here has read every word of the Affordable Care Act? And there's always somebody who raises their hand, which like I'm sure they're lying. But what are you going to do? Just be like, you're lying, you know? So you know I, usually, I usually just say you're irrational. No, you know what you got to do is just lie back, get them back and be like, oh, my gosh, I thought there would be at least five. See, we only have one. It's worse than I thought. <laughs> I'm going to try. <laughs> That's how you get them back. OK, but 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 what's the point there from that example? It's when someone is making you do something, you typically don't go beyond the call of duty. You find out what you need to do in order to meet the requirements. And since it's someone else's goal you're fulfilling, why not just do what they want you to do and be done? Yeah, There's almost, nothing you almost have that. a of limited vision. You're almost blind to the broader context and the opportunities that it presents. Absolutely. But on the other hand, when you're doing things like playing Legos, you know, or playing tag, 
that's the kind of stuff where people got to stop you from doing it. They say, hey, I told you to come inside the house 30 minutes ago. Let's go. You know, they got to stop you because you want to give more and more and more of yourself. And, and I think we underestimate the role that this plays. I tell people only do the things that you can make history doing, because if you do stuff just because you think it's going to work, just because you think it's going to make somebody proud, you might be able to eke out a living. But number one, you won't be all that interesting. And number two, you will always be inferior to the person whose eyes light up when yeah. they talk about that, because there is someone in your field whose eyes light up when they show up to work and you will always be outshined by that person. On the other hand, if you do what makes your eyes light up every time you talk about it, think about it, do it, invest yourself in it. You will be special. People will want to work with you. You will go further, you know, it, than the average it's, person. It's kind yeah. of the, the willing to fail test is, is a good question for me. Like, are you willing to, if you did this and failed, would you still be glad that you did it? Are you willing to fail in the effort? And if, you know, something you love, like playing basketball, nobody says before you play a basketball game, TK, who, let me see the team you're going to go up against. Ooh, man, you know what? You're, the odds are not good. You're probably going to lose. I Just don't do that. Why would you do that? You're probably going to fail. You'd be like, of course, I'm willing to fail. I want to play basketball and I'm willing to fail. I'm willing to lose this game because it, it means so much to me to try to see if we can win to the experience of playing itself. But the way that we treat, you know, and everybody thinks that makes sense in sports. Like if, you know, the team who Vegas favors by 10 points, the opposing team doesn't just not play to protect themselves from failure. Like they're willing to fail. That's why they, they play the game. And I, but I think we treat sort of decisions in life and career very differently. Like, oh, if there's a chance of failure, you're sh you shouldn't do it. And if if failure scares you more than the the pursuit excites you, then it probably isn't something worth going after. But when you can say, I'm willing to fail at this, that's a great test that you should go after it. Um, okay, well, one other thing you said before I forget that made me think of it is you said uh, the field, betting on the field. I think that's a great analogy. People have this idea they're mitigating risk by instead of betting on themselves as one individual, they're betting on the field. So they'll say, okay, the average placement rate for accountants. So that's the whole field. That's all the people who go into accounting. They have this average outcome. I'll do what they did because now I'm not betting on myself. I'm just betting on the field and the field will take care of me. You know, in sports, if you're betting, that's a great risk reduction strategy. If I say TK next year, uh, or, you know, this year world series, the Cubs or the field, even if the Cubs are the best team, which for the first time ever they might be, you're going to say the field if you're smart, if we're just betting like five bucks. But if I say, mm -hmm. if the Cubs win, you get a million bucks. If the field wins, you get 50,000 bucks, which is more reflective of the way that the betting works. Much higher upside, but still a much greater risk. Even the best team is usually not favored against the entire field of all other possible outcomes. But that's not the way your life actually works. The, the, only, the only way the analogy is consistent is that you know, when you bet on yourself, the upside is much higher. Um, if you bet on the field, even in the best case scenario, you're not going to win as much, but the risk is much lower, but it ends there because it's much different. You actually have control over your own life. And if you bet on yourself, that's the one place you can affect the outcome. If you bet on the field and say, the field will take care of me, my degree will take care of me. The industry will take care of me. I'm going to pick the industry that has the most jobs right now. It will take care of me. It might, and it might not have a huge upside, but it might not have a ton of risk, but it also might not, maybe it's a small chance, but you can't affect it. Whereas if you just bet on yourself, just as a mindset, you can affect it. It's not like betting on the Cubs. 
you know, unless you can go on the team and and yourself make them better and make all kinds of different decisions. Betting on yourself instead of the field on the individual level, to me, just makes infinitely more sense. You're putting your, your resources into something that you actually have the ability to control, not control, but, but affect in a, in a tremendous massive way. And even if it starts to go bad, you have the ability to adapt and bounce back. If the Cubs start to lose, you don't have the ability to be like, okay, I'll, I'll make sure they learn from this and improve. Oh man. I think, I think that's a great way to put it. Bet on yourself, not on the field. And you know what? There's another important area where the analogy breaks down. So even if it worked, like let's say the way you set it up is I get a million if the Cubs win and 50,000 if someone from the field wins. Well, let's make the analogy how it would be if it did apply to our life. It would be more like you get a million if the Cubs win and you get 50 cents if the field wins. And, and, and what, I, what I'm trying to say here is that we tend to not only underestimate the value that failure can bring to our lives if we respond to it in an empowering way, but we also tend to overestimate the rewards of playing it safe. We never question this. We always assume that the playing it safe option has only the risk of maybe kind of being unhappy, you know, kind of thinking to yourself, boy, I might be an Academy Award winner today had I gone out to Broadway or something like that. But I think it's much more risky than that. Uh, I'll, I'll give you um, the, the risk of, of doing something that's not really attuned to you. I think it's one of the most tragic things to let your dreams die is one of the most tragic things. And and even the downside of going after them, it's not like that Cubs analogy, because if the Cubs lose, you get nothing. But in your life, if you bet on yourself and you don't get whatever the, the you know hard and fast goal was, if there is one, you get a ton in the process. Absolutely. And let's be clear on this, Isaac. It's not in our nature as human beings to avoid the things we want for no reason. There is a specific kind of reward we are expecting to receive when we when we compromise the things we want. We're expecting either the social reward of people accepting us, loving us or not giving us a hard time. Or we expect some kind of reward like, hey, never having to worry about financial insecurity, never having to be afraid or stressed out about paying the bills. And and something that I have learned. Those are not, those are not my, even options on the table, though. Not even options on the table, man. Reality is not safe. Reality is completely unpredictable Ooh, and unsafe. I like that. You know, like the, the people who spend the most energy trying to avoid arguments and conflict are usually the people that spend the most time dealing with conflict, right? It, it's, you know, it, it, it's sort of like the, it's, it's a big paradox. When you, when you don't say things, when you don't, when you're not honest with people because you don't want to get into a fight, you get into fights all the time. <laughs> but, but then when you, when you decide to be honest and you take that risk and you say, you know what, I'm just going to be honest and I'm going to admit that I don't like this or that I don't want to do that. You'll probably get into a fight the first couple of times because you're, you're establishing a new pattern and you're setting the tone and you're laying a foundation and people have to get used to you. But in a, in a very short while, people say, okay, I know who this person is. I know what their boundaries are. I respect it. It is what it is. And you learn to get along in that way. The people that spend the least amount of time in conflict are the people that are the least afraid of it. The people that try to avoid it, they're in it all the time. And I find this paradox applies to so many things in life. Um, you know, I, I remember a time when, I, and I can laugh about it now, but ooh, I was so mad about it then. When, you know, back in the day, I had a, um, an interview 
for what at that time was a dream job. It was such an awesome opportunity. And they made me an offer. And I would have had to move away like two and a half hours from where I live. I was dating a girl at the time and she was really nervous about this offer. And she felt like, oh my gosh, this is gonna threaten our relationship. I don't know how I feel about long distance. And, you know, it, it really got in my head and I started to doubt myself and rethink. And I'm like, well, I really, really like this job, but I don't want to lose this girl. So I decided to turn down the job and I so didn't want to do it. And I felt so bad about doing it, but I felt like, well, I don't want to lose this girl, man. Like three weeks later, the girl broke up with me for something <laughs> that had nothing to do with the job. It was so funny, man. <laughs> and, the universe and, was trying to teach you something. Oh man, it taught me really well. And the thing is, you know, look, there are certain circumstances where you might sacrifice something for another person, but even then you feel right about it. You say, hey, this yes. reflects my my values. You that, know what I mean? That's I'm, one of the upsides that we haven't even talked about is it's like you just, to, to paraphrase my old friend, you just know it with your knower when you've made that choice that's right with you. And, and yeah. I, I have found this, the power of no, of saying no to things, some of the most amazing, empowering, energizing, hope-filled moments and feelings of my life have been immediately after I have said no to an opportunity that that's you know too good to turn down, a job offer that paid really well, that was prestigious, or you know some kind of offer or opportunity to do something that was not bad in and of itself, but a compromise of who I want to be in some small way. And maybe nobody else could even tell that but me. And I thought about it and the whole thinking about it and weighing pros and cons and cost benefit analysis gets all stressful and you usually can't even figure out what's really right. You just know that like everyone would tell you to say yes. And that's like the sort of smart, you know, common sense decision, but there's something in you, you keep looking for ways to weigh this. And the only thing that I found you can, you can visualize it ahead of time sometimes, um, is imagining truly envisioning saying yes and, and sitting in that feeling and then truly envisioning saying no and sitting in that feeling. And that usually gives you enough of a sensation of what it's gonna be like to know which one feels right. But the minute you actually say it, that really hard conversation, I'm quitting this job. No, I'm not going to take this offer even after I busted my butt to get the interview and everything else, but it's just not right. Or no, you know, friends and family, I am moving away, even though it's going to be hard on you guys. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but like I, I can't do it. Or, you know, and someone comes back and says, well, what if we sweeten the deal? What if we make it better? That's when it's even harder. You say no, and they keep trying to make you unable and you just know. But the minute you say, that's just not me. And you cut off that option from the table, you slam that door. It's like you just feel this surge of power. You've got nothing in front of you. You've got nothing that you know is going to work, but you just feel right. I, I had this one of one of the best examples of this. I think I've told you this before, TK. I'm not sure. I don't know if I've done it on the podcast, but right after um, my wife and I got married, I was very young. I, I was just 20. My wife was 22. We got married and we had a house. We had a mortgage. Neither of us had jobs. I had finished college earlier that year. And, um, was like, okay, what are we going to do now? And I had never known, I have never had like one passion in life, one clear, you know, like thing that I want to do. I've, I've had, I guess I would say like a why, a reason for 
existing. That's like just this passion for freedom, living free and helping others live free. But that doesn't, that doesn't tell you any sort of job or anything. So instead I've taken this approach. We've talked about a lot of times. I just don't do things that I, that I hate. Don't do things that that don't resonate. I had this interview to be a a drug rep, to, to be selling, you know, pharmaceuticals to um, doctor's offices and things like that. Nothing wrong with that job in and of itself. And I got this interview. In fact, you might've even hooked me up with the interview, TK. I think you yeah, did. I, oh, I did. I remember this because they didn't make me an offer, but they made you an <laughs> offer. And I was so mad okay, that so, I referred so, you to them. So it's even better than that, though. So they they did the phone interview with both of us, but then they only called me in for the in-person interview. So, <laughs> <laughs> but we, when you see where the story is going, you can brag about that. You can say that you one upped me. Um, you close the door quicker. So I get there, I do this interview and I kill it, man. I nail it. I mean, they loved me. I was, you know, just really energetic, answering their questions, whatever. And they just felt like, okay, this guy, this guy can do this. And I knew, I just could see the way they were taking notes, looking at each other. I knew they were going to make me the offer and it paid really well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make this much money for, it would be another five and a half years after I said no to this before I made the amount of money that was on the table at age, you know, just turned 20 and it came with a company car, whatever. Anyway, it gets near the end of the interview and I could tell like it's in the bag, wrap this baby up. And they said, but, but I also knew throughout the course of the interview that like, not only was I like not into this, but like, I, I don't actually think I would enjoy my life doing this. I just kind of had this feeling. I just don't think I'm going to enjoy it. And I wasn't sure of that ahead of time, but by the end of the interview, I just knew. And the guy says, so what is it? What is it that makes you interested in the pharmaceutical industry? What is it? What is it about this industry that, you know, you find interesting or some, something to that effect? And I knew exactly what I could say to, to make sure I got the job offer. But I also knew because I had heard about what was on the table offer wise I knew that the minute they made me the actual offer, I didn't think I could fully trust myself to say no. Like if I brought that offer home with me and told my wife and said, here's what's on the table. And then I started comparing everything else to it. I didn't have any other offers. I didn't have anything else going on that was concrete. It would have been like, well, this is not great, but I mean, it's really good. And the more I had to sit with a concrete offer, I felt like I might not be able to resist it, but I knew I didn't want it. So, so when he asked me that question, I was like, you know what? I don't know what I'm even doing here. I got to slam this door now because if I get that offer, I might not be able to say no and I might not enjoy my life. And I said, Mm. to be honest, I don't care at all about the pharmaceutical industry. I said, I'm not really interested in it in the least. What I'm really interested in is helping people be free. That's what makes me motivated. That's what I'm passionate about. You know, my wife and I probably in a couple of years, we'd like to maybe go uh, help our friend open an orphanage in Africa, or we've thought about doing X, Y, and Z. You know, at the time I thought politics was one way to help make people free and I, I don't anymore, but I was like, you know, I might, I might go and, and try to get involved in politics, whatever else. And I saw both of their faces just melt and they were like, mm. okay, crap. He basically just told us he doesn't want to do this. And you're not going to offer to someone who just says, I don't even care about this job, frankly. <laughs> I just, I just bombed it and they shook my head and they looked sad and they were like, thanks for coming in. And I never got a call, never got an offer. And I never felt better on the way home. I never felt better because I knew if that offer came, it would put me in a position that I didn't know if I had the willpower to resist, but I knew that I wouldn't be happy if I said yes to it. 
Oh, man, that is a powerful story. You know, you remind me of David Chappelle. <laughs> you know, um, this reminds me, I, I watched the episode of Inside the Actor Studio and the Oprah Winfrey show where he made his appearance and explained how after a couple of years of having a really successful comedy show and building a cult following, I think Comedy Central offered him something in the range of $40 million for one season. And he was so overwhelmed by the offer and all the strings attached to the offer that he decided that he couldn't do it because even though he loved comedy, he loved having his freedom. And that $40 million price tag, that $40 million salary rather, came at a cost that was too great, too compromising on his freedom. And all sorts of rumors circulated around him. And that's why he showed up on Oprah to, to, to sort of address those things. But everyone just assumed he was crazy. And they would say, how could you turn down 40 million? How could you turn down 40 million? And one of the things he talks about is how the concept of ease is relative. Everything in life that's easy in one sense is difficult in another sense. So you can have a job that makes life really easy in terms of paying the bills, but it's really difficult in terms of something else. Nothing in the universe, absolutely nothing is easy in its totality. So when you make decisions, you don't make decisions based on what you think is going to be easy. Don't follow the path of least resistance, follow the path of maximum fulfillment. You know what I mean? Oh man. Yeah. It's, it's, there are those moments where saying no is the most powerful, empowering thing you can ever imagine. It's it's the moment where you feel your own free will, creative energy, your own ability to be who you want to be more than you do at any other time. And it, and it's not only like, oh, say no to a, a lot of money or a job offer, these examples. I mean, in your case, it would have been the opposite. It would have been not saying no to the job offer, saying no to the girlfriend. Saying no to whatever it is, whatever voice it is that's that's saying, just, just don't go after the thing that's just kind of a little bit crazy. It's a little different. It's, you know, TK, just don't wear the poncho. Nobody else wears these things, you know? Um, you got to say no to that. Say no to the thing that's asking you to do what would make sense for 98% of other people, perhaps, but not for you, you know? Maybe that was a good decision for most people. Maybe common sense, but you just know the minute you say yes or no, how do you feel? Do you feel empowered? Do you feel right? Do you feel energized and excited by it? Uh, this is this is that, you know, um, Michael Ellsberg, the author of The Last Safe Investment and uh, The Education of Millionaires. Great book, um, both of those. He says when it comes to pricing your products or pricing yourself as a freelancer, your happy price. When someone says, hey, will you do this job for 2000 and you say yes, do you immediately start to see the job as like kind of an annoyance and you feel a little bit sad or a little bit stressed about it or a little bit annoyed that you have to do it? Or when you, when they say, will you just do this job for 2000 you say yes, are you just like, oh my gosh, I just got 2000 for this job. I couldn't be more excited. I'm happy. After you say yes or no, how do you feel? That's, that's like the best indicator. I think it beats any form of cost benefit analysis I can think of. I love it, man. As Derek Sivers said it, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. I love it, man. Hey, this was great. I like this episode. This one had a little more energy to it. We're going to keep this, keep this rolling next week. Let's do it, man. All right. Have a good one, Teak. You too, bro.